It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 268 for November 13th, 2011. Hmm, Friday the 13th came on a Sunday this month. Recorded November 11th, 11, 11, 11. At the risk of jinxing myself, I have never had a computer stolen, even though I have left computers in hotel rooms in locations such as New York City, San Diego, Chicago, San Jose, Orlando, Atlanta, Dallas, and probably several others that I've forgotten about. Generally, I'm fairly careful about where and how I leave computers, but my luck so far has been just that, luck. Computers are attractive targets. They're easy to steal. But you can protect yourself. Somewhat. It would be bad to lose a computer. First, there's the cost of replacing the computer, even if it's insured, and the cost of replacing the software on the computer, or convincing the software merchants that the device has been stolen, and they should extend your license to another computer. But what about the data? If you have followed my recommendations, you have your critical files tucked away in a directory that's protected by encryption software, such as TrueCrypt, and you have them backed up somewhere, too. But you'd probably still like to find the computer and recover it if you can. That's what Prey Project is all about. It's a free application that can track your computer. By default, the application installs on the C drive in a directory called Prey. Now, a smart thief might know enough to look for this directory and destroy it. But then again, if the thief is that smart, he's probably also smart enough to look for Prey among the installed applications and remove it. So, I decided not to change the default directory when I installed Prey. It also creates a standard entry in the Start menu. I left that for exactly the same reason. After a few moments, Prey said that it had been installed and recommended that I configure the settings. The first order of business is to set up a reporting method. Without it, Prey won't do you any good. The two options are standalone and web-based. The web-based method allows you to monitor and control the computer from the Prey website, and that's what I selected. The next step creates an account on the Prey server. You'll be asked for your email address, which is what Prey will use to communicate with you. So be sure you get that right. Then you create a password, give the computer an identity. The default for this is the computer's name. And you specify whether the computer is a notebook or a desktop. Yes, it protects desktops, too. Before the system will work, you need to respond to a verification email that the Prey Project sends to you. The setup is now complete. Easy, huh? and the device is being tracked. The control panel for Prey offers various settings for the computer. Prey uses the device's GPS if it has that functionality. If not, then it'll figure out where it is by looking at nearby Wi-Fi hotspots and triangulating, if there are any. The accuracy is reported to be good, but I haven't tested that part. If you enable the function, Prey will attempt to connect to the nearest open Wi-Fi hotspot. Prey allows you to activate any built-in camera, so you might be able to take a picture of the thief using your laptop's webcam. Police like it when you're able to give them this kind of information. You can also grab a screenshot of the thief's active session, so you might be able to find an email address or maybe a Facebook account. If you use Outlook or Thunderbird, you can tell Prey to remove all stored passwords. That would keep the crooks from using your identity. 
or just lock down the PC, which makes it unusable until your password is entered. Well, after setting it up, I reported my computer missing. I went to the Prey website, logged in, and said, My computer is missing. I then turned on the computer, the laptop, the one that's missing, and waited a few minutes. Then I checked my email. There were two messages from the Prey Project. The first told me that I'd marked the machine missing. The second told me it had some information. So naturally, I followed that link. And wow, what do we have here? The report has my picture. Well, that's because the Prey Project activated the camera on the computer. I didn't notice it was taking my picture. It also delivered a picture of what was on my screen. The logged-in user is Bill, so the creep got my username and password, too. That would be a bad thing, of course, if I wasn't the creep involved here. The computer was currently connected to the Internet. <laughs> Big surprise there. But because it's on a LAN, the IP address provided really doesn't do me any good. I can see the MAC address for a couple of nearby Wi-Fi access points. That really didn't do me much good either. Traceroute might be helpful, and that was provided. Well, it told me where we started from and where we ended up. It really wasn't very helpful. Now, the picture, well, that could be useful, and watching what's on the screen might yield an email address, a username, a password, something that would lead to the crook. If the computer was within range of any public Wi-Fi locations, at that time it wasn't, then those could be used for triangulation, and that information would be provided. But if you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website and look at the image, you may notice that to the left of the picture there is a remote IP address which happened to be 75.118.173.245. Now that is useful, because it's identified as belonging to Wide Open West. And WOW would be able to provide police with the name of the customer who had that IP address at the time the report was filed. And reports are filed every 20 minutes. The free service will retain the most recent 10 reports. So if you know the IP address and the Internet service provider tells you who had that IP address at the time, police can pay that person a visit. At that point, I got a little more insistent and I turned on an alert. The alert message, however, never showed up on the remote computer. I suspect this was probably an error on my part. But I've seen enough to consider this a worthwhile service. The bottom line for the Prey Project, maybe you can recover your computer if it's stolen. It's free. It's easy to set up. The Prey Project Monitor checks in when you tell the system your computer is stolen. Numerous configuration features make this a complete solution without making it needlessly complex. For more information, visit the Prey Project website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Have you ever used a two-factor authentication system? The RSA Secure ID system is what's called a two-factor authentication system, and if you work for some government agencies or for big companies that handle sensitive data, you may already know what a two-factor authentication system is, because you might be using one. If not, you might wonder how these things work and why they could be important to you. Two-factor systems such as the RSA's Secure ID use something that you know. Typically, it's a password or a personal identification number. And it's coupled with something that you have, which would be an authentication device that attaches to the computer or provides additional information known only to the device and the system that's being protected. Effectively, each time you log on using such a device, you have a one-time password. 
The problem with individual static passwords is that people choose weak passwords, or they write them down, or they use the same credentials for multiple systems. This makes passwords easy for bad guys to obtain, and once they have them, even easier to use. The RSA Secure ID changes your password every 60 seconds via a small device that's issued to the user. The user creates a password or PIN that remains the same. To log on, you have to have both the PIN and the six-digit number displayed on the Secure ID key. See a picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The RSA solution isn't the only solution in the marketplace, but it's the only one I have any experience using. Some companies depend on USB tokens or smart cards, but these devices, if lost, can be used without a PIN or a password. RSA's Secure ID is probably the market leader, possibly because the system is extremely easy to use. Once the user has created the PIN, logging on requires only the user ID, the PIN, and the ability to type six digits that are clearly displayed on the portable key. Microsoft's upcoming hybrid operating system, the one that spans devices from phones to servers, still hasn't reached beta status. But a lot of people, including me, are trying to read into what is essentially alpha software what the final product is going to look like. This isn't entirely an exercise in futility, and Microsoft certainly is paying attention to what's being said in various forums by people who have downloaded it and are using the operating system right now. This week we take a look at security and usability. These are almost always two sides of the same coin. A highly secure system's usability will suffer, and a highly usable system's security will suffer. Progress has been made in these areas, but there's always some tension between developers on the security team and developers on the usability team. When you first use a Windows 8 PC, you will be instructed. Now, the system is really asking you, but it's phrased more like an order, more like an instruction. You'll be instructed to use the Windows Live account that you have with it. Or if you don't have a Windows Live account, you'll be instructed to create one. If you accept that recommendation, suggestion, it's not an order, really. If you accept it, your Windows Live credentials are used to create an account. By using your Windows Live credentials, you can move from one computer to another, and some of your settings will follow you. That's handy. Windows Live credentials are fine on a desktop or a notebook, but typing what might be a long and complex password on a tablet will annoy some people. So if you have a tablet, you can specify a picture password. To authenticate yourself, you must select one picture from several that are shown, and then complete three gestures. You might choose a picture of your pet cat, for example, then draw circles around his ears. That would be two gestures, one for each circle. And you might pull his tail, tap and drag. There's your third gesture. Now that's all good, but the open source community is concerned about some of the other Windows 8 security measures, ones that might hamper users' ability to set up a dual-boot system with, oh, say, for example, Windows 8 and Linux. Red Hat, Canonical, and the Linux Foundation have gone directly to hardware manufacturers with some recommendations that they say will allow the two operating systems to be installed peacefully on a single computer. But at least some Windows 8 computers will ship with the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI or UFI for short, for secure booting enabled. 
This would make it more difficult either to replace Windows with a version of Linux or to dual boot Windows and Linux. To display a designed for Windows 8 logo, PCs must have the secure boot feature enabled. And this prevents any operating system that hasn't been signed by a trusted certificate authority from booting. The feature can be enabled or disabled by the computer's standard boot setup, but only if the hardware vendors provide a CMOS setting to do that. The Linux community is concerned that manufacturers will enable secure boot and won't provide an option to disable it. The problem is that UV is a great idea that protects users, but it's a feature that could impede users who want to use their computers in what the manufacturer might consider a non-standard way. Red Hat and Canonical, and by the way, Canonical is the company that provides Ubuntu, Red Hat and Canonical both concede that Eufy's secure boot is a good security measure and that it protects against malware. It also protects against rootkits. The new technology also allows IT departments to specify which operating systems can be booted on specific computers. That's another good thing. So my guess and I have to point out that that's all it is at this point, a guess, is that manufacturers will serve both communities. For large corporate accounts and those who want to ensure that UV is always enabled, the manufacturer might provide a model that omits the option to disable it. But for those who want to create a dual boot system, protection could easily be disabled, and they'll probably provide machines that will allow that, too. In short circuits, it has been an interesting week for Adobe. Interesting weeks are not always good weeks, and so it was with Adobe. The company announced plans to lay off hundreds of employees, and also said that it will stop developing Flash for mobile devices. That's going to have significant repercussions for non-mobile devices, too. Now, oddly, the layoffs come just as Adobe has predicted record-setting revenue for the current quarter. And it's not a small layoff. 750 positions, that's about 7.5% of Adobe's jobs. Not all of the changes will affect current employees. In some cases, Adobe will simply eliminate positions that are currently open. Speaking for Adobe, Jody Sorensen said that the reductions will be felt in all of the company's many business units. Adobe expects the layoffs to cost about $90 million, with most of the money going to employees and severance payments. And those costs will reduce the company's overall net income from what it had predicted. As a result of that, the company's stock took a pounding on Wall Street following the midweek announcement. And the other thing that happened this week was that announcement about Flash. Many web applications depend on Flash, but Apple refused to support Flash on its popular mobile devices. And now Adobe says that it will halt development of the multimedia platform for mobile devices. Flash became available for mobile devices only last year. It was late to the party, and it never really caught on as HTML5 and CSS3 brought Flash-like capabilities to browsers that support them, and most browsers now do support HTML5. Despite being an important part of early web technology when Macromedia developed it, Flash has run its course. Adobe supports HTML5 in its web development tools and says that HTML5 is the best solution for creating and deploying content across mobile platforms. 
Adobe carefully noted, though, that Flash will continue to be available for standard browsers running on standard desktop and notebook computers. One might reasonably expect that a significant number of the layoffs announced this week will be directed at the Flash team. I was beginning to think that net neutrality might be a lost cause, and maybe it still is, but for now, it lives. President Obama will not be forced to veto a resolution that would have prohibited the FCC from implementing net neutrality rules because the Senate voted down that resolution this week. Net neutrality still doesn't have a clear path. The measure lost on Wednesday by just six votes, 52 to 46, and two senators didn't vote. The net neutrality rules were the FCC's response to a court ruling in 2008, won by Comcast, after the FCC fined the cable company for throttling some types of traffic. At the time, the court said that the FCC's lack of rules on that subject meant they couldn't take action against Comcast. So, the FCC created rules that will apply to Comcast, the nation's largest cable company, and also to all other cable companies. Among the types of traffic that Comcast impeded was peer-to-peer -peer streams, such as BitTorrent. Oddly, opposition to the new rules comes not just from those who oppose the concept of net neutrality, but also from those who want more net neutrality. Activists at Free Press have filed suit against the FCC because of exemptions for mobile Internet providers. They say those exemptions are illegal. The debate obviously is far from over. Verizon has filed suit to block the rules. In addition, a Republican in the White House would likely press the FCC whose chairperson is a political appointee, to favor companies such as Verizon and Comcast over net neutrality. So, in a word, well, two words, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.